Hi there. My name is Tony Wynn, and I have the privilege tonight to share the message and continue where we actually left off. This quarter, we've been diving into the book of Romans. It's such a great book that Pastor Paul wrote probably while he was in the city of Corinth. He wrote this letter to the Church of Rome, and the church was made up of two major groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews had grown up in the Jewish, Jewish culture with the understanding that they were actually God's people. Their culture and beliefs were really different than the larger culture around them, and the issues they faced were different from everyone around them as well. Second were the Gentiles. The Gentiles, ba Gentiles basically means everyone else who is not Jewish. These non-Jewish people were just like you and me. If we were born in some city in Greece or Italy a couple thousand years ago, and we would have been brought up with that surrounding Greco-Roman culture defining what we experience and what we value and what we know. I often find that our American culture and what we experience on the university campus like Central here is pretty similar to the Gentile culture that Paul is writing about. Have you noticed that this letter is written more systematically than like a traditional letter? I bet you never gotten a letter in the mail like this one from Paul to the Roman church, right? Even if you compare it to another one of Paul's letters like Philippians or even 2 Timothy, it reads really differently. Paul wrote Romans like a big essay with the purpose of revealing God's redemptive plan for all people who believe. He sums up the letter, the letter's major theme in Romans 1, 16 through 17. That says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. So what have we heard so far? Week one, Michael showed us that chapter one is all about Paul describing to the Gentiles in the church at Rome why they are in sin and how badly they need a savior to rescue them. In chapter 2, Paul turns his attention from the Gentiles to the Jews. So now he's covered everyone in the church. No one's excluded. Nate, last week, helped us learn how Paul made it clear to the Jews that they were also in sin and needed a savior just like the Gentiles. So why is Paul doing this? Why is he spending the first couple of chapters in his letter bringing bad news so thoroughly to both Gentiles and Jews and everyone in the church. Does he just like bad news? Does he like raining on people's parades? Well, can I tell you guys a story? Yeah. Sweet. Well, this one time when I was in college, I was really into snowboarding. I saw the weekend forecast, and Mount Baker was going to have a foot of new snow and powder. Pretty sweet. I got so excited because it feels like I'm surfing the slopes with my snowboard that can actually ride on powder, so it's really fun. I tried to get a couple friends to come along with me, and unfortunately they bailed the day before. But I was so determined to go and have a great time that I didn't care and went alone. So I drove out on an early Saturday morning. Actually, I think I, my parents didn't even know I went alone either, so that's kind of funny. But I got there a half an hour before the resort opened. I guess you could say I was pretty excited. So 
I could breathe the snowy air around me. I could see the amazing snow, and I was just moments away from snowboarding bliss. This was so good. Eventually, I got up on a chairlift and thought, all right, easy does it, proceeding to an easy beginner slope before heading to the intermediate slopes and black diamonds. Once I got to the start of the beginner slope, I looked to see fresh, glistening powder. It was untouched, and this was it. I was going to go. A sweet day of snowboarding, here I come. So as I went down the slope and hit the powder, not five seconds into my run, the front of my snowboard got caught in the powdery snow, torched me around, and I must have flipped over because next thing I remember, I was laying on my back to the snow, looking up the sky and seeing stars. Probably looked something like this was what, I, what happened. I felt sharp pain in my back, and the bummer part was that after trying to go on another couple runs, my back hurt way too much. So I called it and drove back to my dorm at Western Washington University. Wah, wah. <laughs> so my back kept hurting into the next week of classes that I scheduled an appointment at the health center. I got seen by a doctor who checked on my back and my range of motion. And so, guys, you know the whole sitting down and stretching out your arms to touch your toes with your fingers type stretch? I could barely touch my kneecaps. <laughs> that day at the doctor's office, I learned two things. One, never go snowboarding alone. <laughs> two, I had back spasms that required me to see both a physical therapist and a chiropractor. It's rough. How many of you here have had a, an injury that needed you to go to the physical therapist or chiropractor? So you kind of get what I'm saying and also how they could be super helpful. But let's say, imagine this. Imagine I showed up to my first appointment with a chiropractor and he said, yeah, I don't want to look at your back. Let's talk about your left arm. It looks like it doesn't have any problems. What a nice arm. <laughs> it, it's functioning perfectly. I'd be like, what? I don't want you to look at my left arm. My back is messed up, and that's what's affecting me right now. Thankfully, I had a chiropractor who was willing to start with my actual problem and get me to the specific solutions that would help bring me to full healing. And this is exactly what Paul does for the church in Rome in his letter to them. He doesn't start by talking about something that's causing them no problems. He starts with their core issue. He is reading their x-rays for them that describe their core problem. Their spiritual x-rays, if you will, show that both the Gentiles and the Jews have the same core problem of sin that's messing up everything for them and keeping them from being fully healed. That's why Paul is starting off this letter talking about the bad news so thoroughly, because he wants to soon lay out the solutions and path for, to healing for both the Jews and the Gentiles and everyone in the church. We're getting to that point very soon, but we have a little bit more of the reading of the spiritual x-rays to go tonight. So tonight, we'll start with Romans 2, chapter 2, verses 17 through 27. If you're using one of the Orange Chi Alpha Bibles, uh, we're on page 783. And also, if you don't have a Bible already, uh, please take home one of these Chi Alpha Bibles for yourself. It's a gift. It's our gift to you. So, Romans 2.17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, 
if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you, then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So what do we see here? Paul has moved from talking to the Gentiles in chapter 1 and now is talking to the Gentiles this, to the Jews this time in chapter 2. As we learned before, they are the ones who were originally looked up to as the people of God. The Jews were. But Paul is getting at a point. He is saying to the Jews that you think you're the solution to the problem. In this situation, if there's a mess to fix, then the Jews living under the law would solve the issue. But unfortunately, Paul creates an argument starting with many positive descriptors. He says, relying on the law and boasting in God knowing God's will and approving what is good, being a guide for those in darkness, an instructor, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Yet he ends with the negative, with you who don't teach yourself, you who steal, you lust or commit adultery, you rob temples for idols, and you break the law. It ends with God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Yikes, that's not good. When Paul makes this list in verses 21 and 22, he's referring to the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. This would be the people of Israel's sin list, if you will. But like the people back then, the principles are the same now. What do we struggle in with in our present day? What is our own modern sin list? Another aspect that Paul is getting at is you who know what to do, do you actually do it? Obedience was a huge issue for the Jews in Rome, and I think it could be an issue for us today too. By this, I mean our problem might not be knowledge because, you know, we know things, but it's do we actually do things? Do we put it to practice? Hey, so some of us are graduating this year, which is really cool. After that comes the careers we're seeking to join, right? Or even give a year, or possibly, possibly being an intern with Chi Alpha. That's cool. Well, let's say you're the very studious student, newly graduated, and the boss, the director, or the missionary is looking to hire you. They're looking to hire someone who can actually do the job. Not a person who is a 4.0 student, but just sits on their butt, not getting the job done. Knowing how to do the job is actually doing, versus actually doing it is an enormous make-or-break difference. 1 Corinthians 13.2 says, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not love, I am nothing. And then 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2. 
but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. I think Paul got it right with the two verses in 1 Corinthians. He figured it out because he had once been a puffed-up Jew. He had been zealous as he could be. He went to a school for Jews at the time, which was maybe the equivalent of Harvard now today, very prestigious and very uh, elite in their scholarship. And you could think of it this way. Paul probably got a straight 4.0 cumulative there. Yet, this is the man who said, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is, found, this, that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul learned that you can know everything in the Bible that God says and it's right, that is right to do, but that knowledge just puffs you up if you actually don't do it. You got to do what it says. Knowledge doesn't transform us. Obeying God, doing what we know, actually transforms us. Please note that when Paul is talking to the Jew, he is really talking to his own former self. That was Saul of Tarsus. He is personally reflecting and identifying with these people, the Jews around him that he's speaking to, because he was just once just like them. If you get a chance to read chapter 9 of Romans sometime, yes, I'm giving you permission to skip ahead on your own, you'll see the depth of Paul's love for his own people. He's trying to help them to not go down the same path as he once done in his life before, to not make the same mistakes. He wants people to not live out the law and completely miss out on just on being made new. There's a difference in that. Out of this love, Paul ends with how God's name is blasphemed through their actions. He's actually quoting Isaiah 52.5 and Ezekiel 36.20 and 22. And that's because if Israel is supposed to be the light of the world, then the nation and its people ought to be blameless. Basically, if people would look at Israel and see that everything is chaotic and bad, they would, see, they would say that their God is so puny. Not the best impression, I'd say. However, we might identify with this in our own actions. How many of us here have heard a need shared and then said, we'll pray about it or we'll do something about that, and then we don't? Friends, I'm totally guilty of this as well. The key missing ingredient is actually obedience. When we learn that there's something we need to do in order to serve someone or uphold God's truth, we need to obey and take action at the next immediate opportunity. So how are you doing at obeying what God wants you to do? What actions can you take in order to make God look great? Let's keep going in our text. Uh, We're now on verse 25 of Romans 2. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, 
If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have written the code in circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person who is not a Jew, who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Paul, what's the whole deal with circumcision? Circumcision was a sign of being a Jew, and it separated them from the Gentiles. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant, or in other words, the promise that God made with Israel through Abraham in Genesis 17. It was a mark of approval, or like a seal of approval, for how Abraham was righteous through faith in God. Here, Paul wanted to address circumcision because the Jews regarded it as a guarantee of God's favor for themselves. The main issue is that they thought circumcision made them God's people. But they weren't at all living like God's people. While it is true that Gentiles and Jews follow in Abraham's footsteps with having faith and righteousness in God, regardless of whether they're circumcised or not, Paul knew the Jews didn't get it, and they needed to be called out to change their ways. Note verse 27. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Whoa. So law-breaking Jews become, in effect, Gentiles. That is such a slap in the face. That's an insult. What is Paul doing here? Paul, or really God, is remaking the category of God's people because there is no title or special perk that any culturally ethnic person would have. It's down to being God's people or not being God's people. So God is redefining what it means to be a member of his own people. And also, we have a new thought now, the idea of circumcision of the heart. This is where, inwardly, a person will be changed, not just by the mark of one's physical body, but by a dramatic alteration of their heart. Paul says the true sign of belonging to God is by the power of the Holy Spirit within oneself. This then changes a person's attitude, a person's heart, to actually God's own attitudes and God's own heart. It's a work of the Holy Spirit which helps us to love God, love other people, and to take action to fulfill that. So do you see it yet? Do you hear the good news? The gospel is this. You and I, by our own control and power, can never love God, can never love others, or take steps to model that. We ourselves can't outwardly make ourselves to be God's people. We can't outwardly do things to make ourselves holy or part of his family. We need Jesus to change us from the inside out, to give us a new heart in order to truly love in order to be clean and to be in right relationship with God. Jesus is the one who circumcises our hearts and by that makes us God's people. He cuts out our sin, our, un- our selfishness, our evil, and makes us new. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. 
this is how we become God's people. And that's the only way we become God's people is by trusting in Jesus and letting him circumcise and change our hearts and make us alive and new. So would you like to turn from your own ways and inadequacies to the God who gets things done? He's the one who promises life to the fullest. So with our text, in a way, Paul is helping us feel actually guilty, not out of his own joy or to belittle us or even to say he's better than us, but it's so that we could turn back to God and we could actually be righteous. So my question for us is this. If Jesus was reading your spiritual x-ray to you right now, what things would you notice? And even, where is your heart at? Take a moment to process if your heart is at the right place, wherever that might be. The third final portion of our text tonight is Romans 3, 1 through 8. Go ahead and turn there and follow in your Bible as I read it. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Surely not. But if that were so, how could God judge the world? Some might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. Here, it's almost as if the audience is kind of giving up on saying the word Jew and circumcision at this point. So, like, why do they even matter now? While God would create a new people who are not physically circumcised and not ethnically Jewish, this new people would hold the same righteous qualities and promise as if they were actually Jewish and as, as, as if they were circumcised. Paul adds that the, new, that the Jews were entrusted with the words of God. However, this type of entrustment doesn't mean to hold, hold it in and have higher class or status than others. Paul means to say that being entrusted with the words of God means the letter or the gospel is not for yourself, but is for someone else, and you must deliver it to them. Remember, there is a job, and the director wants to know you will do it, not just know it in your head and keep it to yourself. As I've processed and contemplated over the rest of chapter 3, I think most of it is Paul wrestling with a common human argument of his day, as he says at the end of verse 5. However, notice that in the argument from verses 3, and, 3 through 5, Paul is pointing out certain attributes of God. This is pretty cool. Verse 3 is God's faithfulness. Verse 4 is God's truthfulness. 
And verse 5 sums it all up with God being righteous because he is faithful and he is truthful. It makes me think we can never really put God in a box. Anything that we do cannot cause God to be lesser than himself. And such arguments like these that Paul's talking about are really futile. Another thing I've noticed is that much of the human argument Paul is making seems to get to a place where it's justifiable for humans to do wrong and harm so God would look good. Are you kidding me? Good luck trying to outsmart God. Verse 7 says, Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Friends, be really careful with this. God is never, ever saying, sin more. Do whatever you want. Your sin is justifiable. It's okay for you to dabble in pornography. Sleep with your friend or significant other before marriage. Get angry and hurt others through force or words. Gossip. Self-deprecate. He's not saying that. He's not saying how it's okay for me to do these things because then I'll pray and receive God's forgiveness and God gets glory from forgiving me. None of these are right. None of these are pleasing to him. It is all sin. And if any of us are thinking, I'll never do any of these, well, on the flip side, we need to be watchful if we actually do nothing at all to continue advancing God's kingdom in our actions. We need to watch for the sin of inactivity where we don't actively advance God's kingdom. James 4.17 says, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This is kind of the idea of sin of omission. And so, careful, because then we are like the Jews that we read about in the beginning of our text. Often in our lives, we choose to be the judge. That's kind of how life works in our culture today, right? So we even think that, unfortunately, we know better than God. We invent our own arguments and rationale for what could possibly be true or what God could or couldn't say is sin or not sin. We think we make better judges than God, just like the common human arguments Paul was referring to in verses 5 through 8. We need to watch out if we think we, rather than our creator, are more qualified to define right from wrong in this world. And if this is resonating for you, please do a heart check right now with Jesus. Let him read your spiritual x-ray to you. What heart change do you need to make to allow God to be God, the creator to define the creation? I believe that Jesus wants to help us get from where we're at right now to God and then ultimately to take us where God wants us to be. Like the Jews, we need to quit any efforts of being righteous on our own efforts, on our own strength, because none of us can do that. We'll just be empty on the inside, just like they were. We need to be careful to not think we should sin like it's no big deal because God will forgive us. We need to turn from any of that right now to Jesus so we could forever be made right with God and made new from the inside out to truly be changed and be God's people who are the light of the world because the true light of the world really lives in us, the Holy Spirit. So all that, all this is the gospel. 
the good news of God's truth. This is what Paul was saying to the Roman believers, and this is what he's announcing to us today as well. There is no ounce of doing anything on our own strength to be right with God, to be clean of our own sin. Instead, God made a way for us to join his kingdom and his people through the blood of his son Jesus. Trying to become right with God by human efforts will always make us end up in the same hopeless spot. I mean, it's true. We need Jesus to be our physician and to lead us to healing. Jesus took all of our sin and said, I will pay the penalty with my own life so you can be saved. This gift is available for all of humanity, regardless of class, regardless of title and ethnicity. You just simply need to let go of what you think your heart needs and allow Jesus to change and shape your own heart. If what I said made sense to you and you want to decide to follow Jesus for the first time or to come back to Jesus again, please grab a friend or one of us on staff or, your, or a core facilitator and ask them to pray for you. Uh, later, the worship team will be playing songs, and so feel free during any of them to declare that you wish to follow Jesus. Don't leave here without doing the right thing. You now know what is good, and so go do that. For the rest of us, I think that the best way to apply what we learned is to think about and answer the questions I shared in my message. How are you doing at obeying what God wants you to do? What actions can you take in order to make God look great? What does your spiritual heart's uh, what, what does your heart's spiritual x-ray say right now? And what heart change do you make to allow God to be God? So at this point, I'd like to welcome up the worship team up. And as we transition to worshiping God through song, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that through... One of your people, Paul, we get to learn what it really means to follow you and how to get to that place, that you are the one way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through you, Jesus. And Lord, please shape our hearts. Please reveal to us what we need. Um, We want to take ourselves out of a prideful spot and say, we humble humble ourselves and say, God, Show me what my heart needs. Reveal to me how I could change. And help me to do that. Thank you so much that, God, you, you come down to us and say, I want to encourage you in this. I want to see this grow in you. Let's, let's go ahead and do this together. And so thanks so much, God. Um, and this time, we just want to worship you and uh, have an opportunity to keep processing what we're learning. And so continue to help us with that, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.